If you like to take notes in your Bible, today is a great day to do that. If you like to write in your Bible, because I'm just going to go through the verses um, verse by verse and add some commentary. I don't have an amazing illustration or funny 10-year-old story or something crazy that happened because we are studying an ultimate story that Jesus told, and I'm not interested in trying to top Jesus because it cannot happen. So we are just going to be in our Bibles tonight. So Luke 7, let's head there. We are looking at a story that probably in your Bibles, most of you, it's called A Sinful Woman Forgiven. And I find it interesting that it's called A Sinful Woman Forgiven, but we're actually at the home of Simon the Pharisee, but we don't even reference him in the title. So what we need to understand, first of all, is this, this is a story about two people. This is a story about the woman and about Simon and their exchanges with Jesus. But we will get to that later. Now, we need to start by understanding Simon a little bit. Simon is a Pharisee. And rarely do we see Pharisees ever spending any intentional time with Jesus. Yes, they are in the same spaces. They have conversations. They often uh, bicker a little bit and go back and forth. But to see them actually spending intentional time together is extremely rare. Um, The Pharisees, as we have talked about, as you worked in your lesson this week, the Pharisees are the religious elite. What that means is the law that God gave them, they keep to the letter. There's no spirit of the law with the Pharisees. They stick to every iota of the law. And they're very proud that they stick to every letter of the law. Maybe even a little arrogant about it, actually. But of course, um, when Jesus came, they were very familiar so familiar with the scriptures and the law that they knew exactly what Jesus should be doing. They knew what he should be accomplishing just as, you know, a fellow rabbi, a fellow religious leader. And when he didn't, when he came and flipped things upside down a little bit, they didn't appreciate it. And so what Jesus did when he came was, yes, he fulfilled the law. He kept the law. Jesus was without sin And he showed them how to love people at the same time. He showed them that the law is not the priority, but the people of God are. And so Jesus brilliantly, of course, kept the law and loved people and showed the Pharisees really what it was supposed to look like. And the Pharisees did not appreciate that at all. The thing with the Pharisees, no one could argue with their moral uprightness. No one could argue that they were of the highest moral behavior. They did. They followed all the rules. They followed all the instructions. They were not your rule rule breakers of society. And so what that meant often is when they were following the law, when they were keeping the rules, there were people on the outside and the margins who were often forgotten and overlooked and mistreated if they didn't measure up to what the Pharisees thought they should. And so Simon is a Pharisee, and Simon has invited Jesus into his home for a party. And you see, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what Simon's motivation was, but we can speculate, knowing a little bit about him. We see clue number one of how Simon feels about Jesus in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. He invited him. 
He is interested in Jesus. Now, it could have been that he was truly interested in what Jesus was teaching about. It could be that he wanted to see behind the curtains of this so-called Messiah and really what his actions looked like up close. It could have been that he wanted to see Jesus up close so he could catch him red-handed in blasphemy and be able to tell all of the other Pharisees, I caught Jesus. But we don't know exactly what his motivation was. What we do know is that he had a keen intellectual interest in Jesus. And so that is Simon. That is our host for tonight. And they're at the party. They're at this amazing banquet. And we picture the banquet. We can, we can hear the small talk. We can hear the chatter, the greetings going on, the I love your outfit. How are you doing? Did you play a good round of golf today? And all of this is going on. And the thing with the people of this time, the rich people especially, is that their homes were often open air, especially their dining area was an open air dining area. And so passersby, could, they could go by and they could see and hear exactly what was going on in all of these conversations. And so the culture of that day was basically that if there was a party, you could go in, even if you weren't invited, you just couldn't eat. So you're welcome to come in, you just can't eat. And I am loving this idea for all of the people who don't RSVP. (laughs) You can come in, you just cannot eat the food. Some of you discovered that with Bible study when we said, yes, come, we just can't have a book. (laughs) But now we have books, so everything's great. But um, it wasn't just that. They could come in and they could listen. They could watch. They just couldn't partake of the party. They couldn't kneel down and recline at the table with the party goers. Um, the, The hospitality of these parties was one to be reckoned with. It would put Emily Post, y'all know who Emily Post is? Miss Manners herself. The hospitality of the Pharisees would put Emily Post to shame because when your guest came in, you washed their feet, you kissed them, and with a, you greeted them with a kiss, and then you anointed their heads with oil. Now, if this seems a little bit over the top, and it probably does for most of us, we need to understand and visit their day-to-day lives, right? They were in a Mediterranean area where it was humid, and they were sweaty. It was dusty. There was no indoor plumbing, or outdoor plumbing for that matter. They couldn't go take a shower. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't really have soap. There was no feminine hygiene. And they walked on the dirt roads in their sandals, on the same roads that animals walked on, and they often walked behind animals, and we know what happens behind animals. And that is how they would come in to the party. And so the first thing you would want to do, knowing that you are soon going to recline on the floor and lay on the floor with the table and the food, is that you would like the feet to be clean. You would like to have a nice aroma about you. And so that is what they did at the beginning of each party. And thus began the tradition that we know, I believe, is cleaning up for dinner. There was a very good reason why they would do this. It wasn't just good manners. It was actually necessary. This is what you did for your guests so that everyone could enjoy the meal. But Simon, Simon doesn't do any of these things. Look in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. So somewhere between house and reclined, 
We should have seen some kissing, some washing, and some anointing. (laughs) But we don't. And so we have clue number two of how Simon felt about Jesus. Jesus was Simon's honored guest in word, but not in deed. And so as they're reclining and people are milling about and they are beginning to enjoy their mill, Jesus feels something damp on his feet. He feels something and turns around and there is a woman standing there. And they assumed that possibly she was one of the party goers just that came in to kind of check things out. But not just that, she came up to Jesus. And at this point, everyone noticed her. Look at verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Imagine it. She's standing behind Jesus And she has cried so many tears that they have fallen off of her face onto Jesus' feet enough that he can feel it. She didn't even make it all the way up to sit down next to Jesus. She started crying before she even got to him. And she's not just crying. She is sobbing. And everyone is staring. And they're not just staring because she's committed the ultimate party foul and she is sobbing in the middle of the room. They're staring because they recognize her. They recognize her as the sinful woman. They recognize her as the one that they saw down the street. Luke says that she was a woman of the city. Or we might say a woman of the night. And scholars can't say, although it doesn't say exactly what her sin was, scholars who are familiar with this language would say that she is a prostitute. And that is the sin that she is known for. And no doubt they have seen her around the city. And so there's this pretty woman moment when she comes in because she looks around and she knows that everyone else knows, that she knows, she shouldn't be there. They know who she is, and she knows they know who she is, and she doesn't fit in. She's not one of them, but she doesn't care. She is there to see Jesus. Can you imagine what it took for her to be there? Can you imagine the bravery and the courage it took her to enter into this very pious space. Can you imagine what she's experiencing in this moment? Now, I can't say I have experienced a lot of these moments. because It's not because I don't fit in. <laughs> it's because I am a coward, and I would rather cancel and stay home on my couch than end up in a space where I'm not going to fit in. I have done it many times in my life. But this woman is filled with deep conviction and passion, and she is willing to risk everything to see Jesus. There's something about this, don't you think? I mean, we don't need clues to know exactly how this woman felt about Jesus. Look at verse 37. A woman, we'll go back one, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. An alabaster jar of perfume. 
So if we picture this, it is a small flask, a, a small white one um, with a skinny neck. They often wore them around their necks. It had a hole in the top where the fragrance could come out, but the oil and the very expensive perfume could not get out. And so the only way to get the oil, the perfume out of the jar was to break it. And once you broke it, you could never use it again. That, that was that. And so we go back and think about the conditions of the day, right? Smelly, dirty, sweaty. And to be quite frank, when we think about who she is and what she did for a living, it was of great advantage to her to smell nice. That when she walked through the groups of people, that she would have this alluring and refreshing scent about her. Honestly, it was good for her business. So hear this. She took the most precious thing, probably the most expensive thing she owned, and she laid it at Jesus' feet. She broke it and poured it out for Jesus. She gave the best she could give and she would never get it back. But she gave it to Jesus. And this woman gave everything she had all of her life in this moment to Jesus because she recognized him for who he was. And the moment she found him, she stepped up and said, you can have it all, Jesus. And so let's stop and think for a minute. Let's compare a little bit Simon and the woman, right? Simon and the woman, they've both been watching Jesus. They both heard stories about him. They have both heard of his miracles, his healings, his forgiveness of sin. And so they are both interested in him. Both Simon and the woman want to spend time with Jesus. Simon wants to have a discussion. The woman wants to have a relationship. Simon has an intellectual, detached response to Jesus. The woman immediately gets very personal. Simon is concerned about who might be touching Jesus. And the woman, she can't stop touching him. Look at verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So look at this. She wiped his feet with her hair. She came up behind Jesus. <laughs> She's crying. She's sobbing. His feet are wet, and so she breaks the alabaster jar of perfume gets it on her hands, she takes her hair down, she kneels down next to Jesus, and she wipes his feet with her hair, with part of herself. How deeply personal does she want to get up and close to this Savior? How deeply emotional and intimate it was when she let herself not be all put together and just came as she was to Jesus. I can't help but compare, of course, uh, my wedding day to this moment. Joel and I got married at four in the afternoon, and so that meant that the hair appointments 
um, for me, not for Joel, um, the hair appointments started that morning, and they were part of the whole day. And because um, I wore my hair in an updo, um, it was 2008, and so... Um, because we got married outdoors in March in Texas, I had about seven and a half cans of hairspray in my hair and around four to 5,000 bobby pins, just averaging. Um, and I remember uh, we get to the hotel and I start taking my hair down. We took a picture of the bobby pins because it was such a pile. And it was a whole entire moment. And by moment, I mean 45 minutes of taking my hair down. But by the time I finally got my hair down, and it was about this big, there was this moment where I could be completely myself, where I was undone, and I could be open and vulnerable and relaxed with my husband, and he could experience me in that moment in a way no one else that day had. And it was deeply personal. It was deeply intimate. It was hilarious, and we will never forget it. <laughs> but we will never forget it because it connected us. You see, the women in this day, they could not wear their hair down in public. If they did, then it was grounds for divorce. Because wearing their hair down was something deeply intimate and personal for them. Because they were exposing themselves, exposing who they are in their natural form, to the public. And so this woman not only takes her hair down, she does it in front of everybody because all she cares about is this man, Jesus, that she has heard will forgive her sins. What her actions are saying is that Jesus demands a different response. And at this point, the room is aghast at her behavior. She has come into this place where she doesn't belong. She wasn't invited. She proceeds to do for Jesus what Simon could not and did not, and then shares this very vulnerable personal moment with him. And so what her actions are saying to everyone in the room is this man is different. Jesus demands something different from us. And she will give everything and she will risk everything to show her love for Jesus. But Simon, Simon's not interested in an exchange like this. In fact, he's a little creeped out by all of this. Simon doesn't want touching. Simon doesn't want vulnerability. Simon doesn't want crying. And by no means does he want Jesus asking how it is with his soul. Simon is not interested in that kind of relationship with Jesus. Simon, to this point, doesn't need a savior because he has been able to save himself with his good actions. Simon has forgotten about his arrogance and his pride, but on the outside, Simon looks great. And so why would Simon need a savior? And so to this point, there is no need for a personal relationship with this man who forgives sin because Simon. Simon doesn't need that. Simon is interested in learning, but he doesn't want to change. The woman is interested in loving and will give Jesus everything. So let me stop and ask you, have you begun to find yourself in the story anywhere? Learning about Jesus, but not wanting to change. 
loving and willing to give him everything. Well, it's about this time in the story that we see Jesus respond. And I imagine Jesus is still reclining at this point. And I picture, this is my picture, that Jesus is reclining. The woman is behind him. And Simon's across from Jesus. And Jesus sees that Simon sees what's going on. And Jesus can see Simon can't hold his face. <laughs> Simon's like, what, what is happening here? And this is, look at verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he said to himself, We all see that, right? If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him out loud, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Oh, Simon. (laughs) Tell me, teacher. And so Jesus tells one of his parables. And so most people who are in the room, they know of Jesus' stories. They love Jesus' stories. Whether or not they understand them, they're great stories. And so everyone's leaning in to listen to this story that Jesus is telling them. And they're like, this could be really interesting. Or we're about to catch him in blasphemy. So let's pay attention. Get your notes ready. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which one of them, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. He walked right into that one, didn't he? You think Simon's beginning to understand yet? You know, I think it's clear to Simon that who in the room owes 500 denarii? He's like, that's you. <laughs> but then when it gets into this part about 50 denarii, he's like, who, who owns the, is it, oh, who owns fit? Me. Me? I'm the one who owes 50 denarii. And Simon realizes that what Jesus is saying is that Simon owes a debt that he cannot pay. At this point, Jesus is showing to them that, yes, there are different levels and amounts that they owe. But it doesn't matter how much sin you have. If you can't pay, you can't pay. There's no payment plan for this. You remember our farmer Jedediah from our intro? When you can't pay for your debt, you don't get a payment plan. You sell your land and you become a slave. There's no in between. And Simon knows that. There's not a payment plan for paying back this kind of debt. A debt is a debt. And so the woman and Simon, they're both dead in their transgressions. They owed a debt they could not pay. And can you imagine Simon kind of thinking through this, like how, okay, so how could I repay Jesus? What does this look like? And he's scrambling, trying to think, how could I, you know, what sacrifices? Actually, maybe I should ask us, what do we do when we think we owe Jesus something? What do we do? We start, we go to the nearest serving station and start serving, (laughs) We write a check for two months' ties trying to catch up. We're like, we'll catch up, Jesus. We got this. We start praying down our prayer list like it's a Wednesday night prayer meeting at the Baptist church. 
And I can say that because I went to those my entire childhood. There's no prayer like a Wednesday night Baptist prayer. (laughs) And all of these are great things. These are important in the life of a Christ follower in the kingdom of God. But what is the motivation? Is it I recognize that I've been rescued, that I was dead, and you brought me out of the pit, and I'm willing to give you everything? Or is it that I'm a little behind, Jesus, and so I'm going to clear my conscience and pay it all back to you. I'm going to go ahead and pay it all back before Jesus asks me to do anything more. You see, so many times we try to be our own saviors and our own gods to solve our own problems in our own way. It doesn't matter who who has more sin. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 says there is no one righteous and that the payment for sin is death. From one sin to a thousand sins, the payment is death. And friends, we can't pay it. The woman knew her debt, and Simon had no concept of the cost. The woman knew it would cost her her life, and she was readily willing to give it. Not just to anyone, but to this man who was willing to forgive all of the sins she had ever committed. To this man who loved her and saw her in a way that she had never known And Jesus is saying to Simon that the only way for anyone to know God is to come through Jesus, the only one who can pay your debt. Jesus says he is the way, not a way. Friends, there's no one else who wants to pay your debt, but Jesus does. And he will pay it, and he is dying and ready to pay it. You see, Simon wasn't sure that he was ready to get down off his own throne, Simon wasn't so sure that he was ready to let someone else be Lord of his life. Simon wasn't ready to surrender control. Simon wasn't keen on somebody else paying his own his debt when he was pretty sure he could do it himself. But the woman, the woman knows. She understood the most basic premise of theology. Y'all know what that is? It's what I tell my 10-year-old quite often. There is a God, and you are not him. And the woman knew that. She didn't need a throne because she had a savior. And so let's think about this. Let's, besides all of the theology, let's think about this very practically, okay? We got to do both. So think about this practically. For Simon, Simon believes, I follow the rules and God loves me. I follow the rules, and so God loves me. So what about Simon when his house burns down or when something bad happens to Simon? There's only two options. Does, I mean, does God no longer love him? Is God no longer for him? Does God no longer provide for him because Simon didn't do well enough? The only two options are it's either I follow the rules and God let me down or I tried to follow the rules and didn't do well enough and so I don't deserve it. Is there hope in either one of these scenarios? So for the woman, she said, I can't follow the rules. And I know God loves me. So when her house house burns down, God's love doesn't cease. 
When her house burns down, it's not because of something she did or did not do, because God's love is exclusive of her actions. God's forgiveness is always there for her. And so in her worst times, she knows that she will be comforted and provided for from her God. So what does that mean, not just for the woman, but for the others in her life? Well, for the woman and for you and me, our ability to love others directly stems from us recognizing how much we have been forgiven. Because, friends, I have been forgiven loads. And so I can love you because I know you've been forgiven loads too. Then I can love in a deeper way because of this love that came to me so freely. And when we recognize that it comes to us so freely, we cannot help but be filled with deep gratitude that someone was willing to rescue us in our deepest, darkest moments. And when we recognize that rescue, it flows out of an overabundance in our hearts and it just goes right out onto others. And friends, this is the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like to understand freedom forgiveness, and love. When we understand the links that Jesus went to get to us, our eyes are opened to others. And no matter who we meet or who is in our lives, we are fueled by the love of the Savior. So let me ask you, do you love like the woman? The question behind that would be, do you realize how much God did for you? Another question is, is there someone you're struggling to forgive, struggling to love? The question behind that would be, do you realize how much God loves you? You know, I always had trouble with um, truly understanding Jesus on the cross for a long time. Because I was like, he's God. He knew it was coming. He was fine. He knew it was for a season. But I read something a couple decades ago that stuck with me, and it was a conversation um, that Max Licato wrote about this this consternation I was struggling with, and I wanted to share that with y'all because it made a huge impact on me. So it starts with this. She says, Lord, I may be stepping out of line here saying this, but there's something that's been on my mind. I don't like this verse in Matthew 27 when Jesus is on the cross right before he died, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It doesn't really sound like something you would say because forsaken, it means abandoned. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Abandon? Really? I mean, usually I love it when you speak. I listen when you speak. I imagine the power of your voice, the thunder of your commands. That's what I like to hear. Remember the creation song? God, that you sang into eternity when you ordained the waves to splash and they roared and when you hung the stars in the sky and they flew, that was you at your best. That's the voice I love to hear, God. That's why I don't like this verse. Look at this sentence. There is a why at the beginning and a question mark at the end. You don't ask questions. And as long as I'm shooting straight with you, God, I don't like to see the word forsaken or abandoned here. I mean, the source of life abandoned, 
The giver of love abandoned? The father of it all abandoned? Come on, surely you don't mean it. Could deity be abandoned? Okay, could we just change the sentence just a little bit? Just a little bit. Just the verb. Just the verb. God. Okay, how about challenge? My God, my God, why did you challenge me? See, isn't that better? Now we can applaud. It makes sense now. You see, that makes you a hero, and history is full of heroes, God. And who is a hero but someone who survives a challenge? Or if that's not acceptable, I have another one. How about afflict? My God, my God, why have you afflicted me? Yes, that's it. Now you are a martyr. You are a martyr who takes a stand for truth, a patriot pierced by evil, a noble soldier who took the sword all the way to the hilt, bloody and beaten but victorious. Afflicted is much better than abandoned. You couldn't be left alone. You couldn't be deserted in your most painful moment. Abandonment? That's punishment for a criminal. Abandonment, that is suffering borne by the most evil. Abandonment, that's for the most vile. Not for you, the king of kings. Not for you, the beginning and the end. Not you, the one unborn. After all, didn't John call you the lamb of God? The one who has come to take away the sins of the world? Wait a minute take away the sins of the world. I've read that, but I've never thought about those words before. I don't know. I just thought you like wished the sin away. (laughs) I thought you stood in front of the mountain of our sin and just said, be gone. Just like you did the demons, just like you did the hypocrites in the temple. I just thought you commanded evil out. I never noticed that you took it out. It never occurred to me that you actually touched it. Or worse, that sin touched you. That every time you forgave sin, you absorbed the cost. That must have been a horrible moment. I know what it's like to be touched by sin, Jesus. I know what it's like to smell the stench of that stuff. Remember what I used to be like before I met you? Okay, okay, stop laughing. Remember what I was like two minutes ago? Yeah, remember what it was like before I met you? I wallowed in sin. I celebrated sin. I drank sin. I danced with sin. I was in the middle of it. But why am I telling you? You were there. You were the one who found me. You were the one who came and got me. I was so lonely, and I was afraid, and I felt forgotten. Do you remember? You remember? I was saying that, that question, why? Why me? Why has all this happened? And I know, I know, it was the wrong question to ask, but it was the only question I knew to ask at the time. You see, God, I felt so confused. I felt so desolate. Sin will do that to you, you know? Sin leave you, leaves you shipwrecked. It leaves you orphaned. It leaves you adrift. Sin leaves you abandoned. Abandoned. Oh. Oh my, my goodness, God, is that what happened? You mean sin did the same thing to you that it did to me? 
Jesus, you felt abandoned too? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I didn't understand. You really were alone, weren't you, Jesus? Your question was real, wasn't it, Jesus? You really were afraid. Just like I was, only I deserved it and you didn't. Forgive me, Jesus, I spoke out of turn. Let's pray. Father, we can't even comprehend what you were feeling on the cross. And that you have no regrets. (laughs) But you did it for us. And we are so deeply thankful, Lord. You are so good. We love you. And we praise you in your son's name we pray. Amen.